Okay, let's go before the Lord and ask for his blessing. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you as needful people, helpless people who need your grace, your mercy in all things. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness of our many sins, of sins committed and sins that we are committing and sins that we shall commit. Even those of omission have mercy for the sake of Christ. We pray for help in hearing from you this morning. Help us by your scriptures. Help us by your spirit that we may know the truth of Christ. We honor you, we glorify you for all the saints for whom this message has been given. May you grant them ears to hear also. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you saw some post somewhere that in Utah, some school has banned the Bible because it is contains language that is violent and is not good for children. <laughs> yeah. The Bible is head speech. The movie is going to be showing the cinemas close to you sooner than you know it's coming because we are on that path of sinners warring against the truth of God. We're going to see more and more of that. So just be prepared. Don't be shocked. The times are evil, but the iniquity of the Amorites must come to its fullness because God has to judge people for their sins, and so there has to be sinners. There has to be vessels of destruction. So thank God for his grace that he set us apart from all that kind of foolishness. Good morning again, one and all. This morning we are in Romans 5, 15 to 23. And I'm going to read from the New English Translation. I am warming up, causing up with the NET. It has some good translations in certain areas of the Bible. We are not a KJV-only people. We are a Christ-only people, <laughs> a grace-only people. Paul says, Romans 5, it's not Romans 5, it's Romans 6. <laughs> Romans 6, 15 to 23. What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Absolutely not. Do you not know that if you present yourselves as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, 
either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching you were entrusted to, and having been freed from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what benefit did you then reap from those things that you are now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. But now, freed from sin and enslaved to God, if you have your benefit leading to sanctification and the end eternal life. For the payoff of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the word of the Lord. And for title, we have one title. Freed from sin. Freed from sin and enslaved to God. Freed from sin and enslaved to God. Paul begins verse 15 by a question and says, What then? Could have used that as a title also. What then? Yes, Paul, what then? What then shall we conclude from all that have been said about God's salvation? His justification, reconciliation by grace alone, through Christ alone, without your own obedience, without your own works. What shall we say about the body of sin that was made powerless by the cross? How do we handle the message? How should we respond to the message? How should we relate to the message of God's grace? And the question, what then, must be asked because this is not an ordinary message. This is not something sinners have ever heard of, not even in their own imagination. It is an extraordinary message that speaks to eternity. It speaks to your eternal standing before a holy and righteous God. This is what God has made you forever and ever and ever and ever. This is your true identity. And there's nothing that will ever happen to you in this life that will change that or can change that. It's very 
extraordinary message. So there's bound to be a misapprehension, even abuse, even distortion of such a message. And Paul asked and said, What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? And his response is, absolutely not. God forbid, may never be. Shall we then use the truth of God's free justification? That's the point. The real issue is you have been justified freely without even God saying you have to stop this sin to be justified. There's no stopping of sin that causes justification. And there's nowhere in the Bible, in the New Testament, that says, stop sinning to be justified. It's impossible to be justified by you stopping doing something or anything and starting to do something or anything. There's no salvation in starting or in stopping. So there's bound to be a distortion of this message because of how grand it is. Shall we use this message as basis and motivation to sin the more since it is all, all of grace. And as Paul has said in Romans 5, that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Grace always above sin. It doesn't matter the sin. Grace shall always be above the sin of all of the elect. And that is why it's foolish talk to say a Christian who died through suicide was not saved. The implication is one is saved by how they die. (laughs) It's foolishness. It's all a denial of the truth. Life does get overwhelming and people just don't have enough strength. And they give up. Okay? The flesh is weak and can even be very weak. People give up. But we cannot say one is condemned just by reason of how they died. That is not accurate teaching. But then, Paul is saying, having had this message, we are not as the redeemed to say anything goes. After all, it is Pride Month, right? It's making the words. Let us join with them and fight their cause for recognition, for recognition, 
for human rights. The gospel is not about human rights. <laughs> the gospel is about the glory of Christ in the salvation of his people. The gospel is not about affirmative action. It is not about equal rights. It is about Christ and God's grace towards a people who were in sin. But Paul says, to those who have been enlightened of and by God's truth, whose minds have been opened beyond what they see in this world, to begin to see spiritual realities. He says to them, absolutely not. God forbid that will not work because that's not the way to relate to God's message. That's not why Christ was revealed. That is not why he died. He came to put away sin, not to inject more steroids to sin. That is the function of the law. The function of the law is to increase sin. That's what Paul said. And Christ did not come to increase sin. He came to reverse the effects of sin. But don't dismiss this. Paul said, the redeemed are not under law, but grace. The redeemed are not under law, but grace. And that is a clear teaching and a clear distinction that he made, that is not being made in a lot of pulpits and pews this morning. Because what you say about law and gospel reveals whether one is telling the truth on Christ or not. And Paul could only say the things he said with respect to the redeemed view of and relation to sin if it was not true that they were not under the law according to his gospel. Paul is saying this. Shall we sin the more because we are under grace? He is saying that because he realizes that the message that he brings is saying people are not under the law. Those who are in Christ are not under the law. Otherwise, as a Jew, he would, he would, he would have just given them over to Moses. That would have been so easy for him. And that means grace in its purest and correct form does sound like lawlessness. That's the reason why he writes this. When grace is properly understood, it does sound like lawlessness. Because it does not condition eternal matters of any kind on the doing of a sinner. Especially the good things 
even moralism. Grace does not condition eternal matters on any kind of doing by you and me. So for that reason, it sounds like lawlessness. And so when you really declare grace for what it is, that's what you're going to get. People are going to start accusing you of teaching antinomianism and lawlessness. And Paul is correcting that. It is part of the offense of the gospel and it must be maintained. I am not going to impose on you laws and commands and put you under Moses just because I'm afraid of God's grace. That's what a lot of preachers do. They are afraid to let Christ loose on his people. They have to somehow minimize the power of Christ on his people by putting Moses back. We cannot improve human morality by putting the redeemed under Moses. God has his own way of doing that. The redeemed are under the administration of grace, not of law. The administration of the Holy Spirit and not of the letter that kills. Grace has morality too because it is of Christ. There's nothing immoral about Jesus. There's nothing immoral about the Holy Spirit. The main reason why people won't let go of Moses is because they do not know Christ. They do not understand the gospel and they surely do not understand the law. They do not understand what the law actually is saying. They do not understand its function. And they also minimize the Holy Spirit. If you go on Amazon or any bookstore, I'll say Reformed, and you look for books on the Holy Spirit, you're not going to find that many books. There's Abraham Kuyper and John Owen. They have the two books on the Holy Spirit. You're not going to find much on the Holy Spirit. But you're going to find a turn on law. And yet the administration of the church body has been given over to the Holy Spirit and not back to Moses. Okay? Look for this thing for yourself. That's why the Holy Spirit is minimized in the life of the church. A lot of people think Christ and his spirit are not enough morally for the redeemed. Hence, they have to import the Ten Commandments, Moses, under the guise of the moral commandments 
to try and bridge some perceived moral gap that grace has created. To them, grace has created a serious moral gap that has to be plugged in by bringing back Moses to bind on the conscience of the redeemed. That's the thinking behind it. They're not thinking through what grace is saying. And yet the Bible clearly says it is the very Ten Commandments that are the letter that kills. They are the ministry of death and condemnation as we shall be expounding more when we go back to First Samuel, when I get back from my trip next week, we're going to be back in First Samuel and we're going to park there for a minute. <laughs> but we have to understand the real function of the law for us to also have an appreciation of God's grace. But the truth of the matter is that the redeemed relate to God by grace alone. The power of God towards them. The love of God towards them is by grace alone. His grace is sufficient for them. For his power, as Jesus said to Paul, my power is made strong in weakness. What kind of weakness? The weakness of sin. His power of salvation. His power of his love. His faithfulness. Is made manifest. Is made strong. In your weakness. In your stumblings. And by grace God means. By his own power. That's what grace means. It means by his own doing. God is saying, by my grace, by my own power and my own will, I will do this. And I've done this. That's what grace is saying. It's more than just unmerited favor. It's saying God is the one doing it on your behalf. So the church is a community of grace cases not of law keepers, in and of themselves. We are not natural law keepers. We are grace cases. The church body is a gathering of those who have kept the law through another person, through another person, vicariously, that is through Christ Jesus. We are law keepers. God sees us as having given the law everything that the law required through Christ's obedience. But in and of ourselves, we are not law keepers, we are sinners. But this is how God sees us. And to bring this community that Christ has redeemed under Moses is to violate a lot of things that Christ has already done for them. It is to bring them back 
under condemnation. Because the law remains the ministry of death and condemnation. It does not change its testimony. But in his argumentation, Paul said in verse 16, let's go to verse 16 of Romans 6. Do you not know that if you present yourselves as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? So there are two kinds of obedience that are presented to us. And also two masters at this level of the human experience. And Paul says, in this regard, that one is a slave to the one they obey, and that is just a statement of fact in any aspect or sphere of life. And that to say, none is standing on neutral ground as many Suppose everyone is being ridden by someone, everyone is a puppet on a string to someone. And there is a negative and positive connotation to that statement depending on who is pulling your strings. And I'm saying, by this poor rubbishes the whole idea of human free will. He says, people are slaves. Everyone is a slave. But there's a bad way in the context of sin and salvation. There's a bad way to be a slave and a good way to be a slave. And that is the very opposite thinking to free will, which says humans have natural ability of will to do right by God. Especially to come to Christ or to reject Christ without God's power causing them to will and to do for his good pleasure. The Bible says, I believe it's Psalm 103, thy people shall be made willing in the day of thy power. Thy people, the elect, are made willing by God in the day that he shows his power. And you and I have come to Christ because we were made willing by him. He imposed his power and we came to Christ in faith and repentance. We were made willing. And so the whole point of advocating for human free will by those who do that is in service to their rebellion and denial of God's gracious election. 
that is 100% the reason why they deny God's sovereign grace. Free will is always given to deny God's free and sovereign grace election in salvation. And saying, no, God cannot be the one who made the decision. The power is in me. I am the sovereign sinner. I determine whether I like to be saved or not. (laughs) That's free will. And that's false. But Paul says one is a slave doing sins bidding resulting in death. And what we know from the illustration that Paul is using and very purposeful is that the slave has no power over the master. That's why they're slaves. They've been overpowered. And the one who is under the power of sin, sin being their master, is powerless to free themselves. They can only get what sin gives them for payment. They don't determine their own payment. They get what their respective master is giving them. Okay? And for sin, that is death. And that means condemnation. So Lazarus in the grave had no power to set himself free from death until the one who had power, who was a greater master than sin and death, the Lord Jesus came and said, Lazarus, come forth. That's a different master. That's a more powerful master. And that divine command is what gave Lazarus the ability to hear and to come back to life. The man who had the withered hand and could not stretch it had no power to make it stretch by himself. Doesn't matter what he willed to do. Christ Jesus had to come and command it and say, stretch out your hand. And in that command was the power. The power of God is in Christ. He is the Logos. So when God created, he spoke. Christ is the word of God. That's why the New Testament says God created all things through Christ. He mediates everything that God does because he is the word of God. And in the word of God is all the power of God. He holds all things by the word of his power. Imagine just commanding everything to happen by the word of your mouth. (laughs) That's power. It's power that we can't even conceive because when we See power at work. We have to use an engine. We have to use a caterpillar. We have to use a semi to pull stuff. 
but we can't command things to happen and say, let it rain. We have no power to do that. The woman who was bent and bowed down had no ability to straighten herself up. She was like that, I believe, for 38 years. Or 18 years. I don't remember the number of years. But there's an eight in it. <laughs> but she could not, in, she could not straighten herself. Christ had to come and command for her to be made straight, to be made righteous, for her to look to heaven. Because if you bend and bow down, you cannot look up to God. Essentially, that's the picture. That's what sin has done. It causes us to be bent and bowed down, looking downwards to earthly things, to things of the dust. It's when Christ has come and commanded life in us that we begin to look upwards to see Christ. So these were all enslaved to the power of sin physically and spiritually. The physical reality of them being bent and bowed down, of not being able to stretch their hands, of being born blind, they exegeted the spiritual reality. So there's none who is spiritually in that state of being born in Adam. Essentially, everybody who is born in Adam is in the picture of the woman who was bent and bowed down, in the picture of the man who could not stretch out his hand, in the picture of the man with leprosy. All those healings are spiritual pictures of who you and I are apart from Christ. So, so all that to say, there's no free will that can reverse that kind of situation that is not coming from God himself. None can reverse their own blindness unless Christ comes and opens their eyes. And that to say Christ is he who makes the difference between the saved and the unsaved, the blind and those who see, the believer and the unbeliever, the dead and the alive, Christ alone makes the difference. So there's nothing called stop sinning so that you can be saved. That statement, though popular, is saying to one who is in bondage already to set themselves free first before they can be set free. They're saying, set yourself free so that we can set you free. It does not make sense. It's impossible. A sinner is a slave. They have no freedom or power to act otherwise. They are stuck. If stopping sin is what is required for anyone to be saved, then none will ever be saved. A sinner needs someone who is greater than their master, their master who is sin, 
to come and set them loose. They need a stronger man, the Lord Jesus, to set the captives free, to make them free, as he said, he came to set the captives free. How? First, by his own obedience, by his blood, by his justification of them. Because none is free who is not justified from their sins. And also by his Holy Spirit to give them the power to turn, which is to repent to him, to believe, to see Christ, to see the truth. Otherwise, they remain dead, blind, and powerless. God has to cause us to turn. That's repentance, to turn to Christ and behold all these wonderful things about him, our salvation in him. That's true repentance, my friends. But there's also the obedience that results in righteousness. Obedience that is unto righteousness and that with a different outcome. It is an obedience or the obedience of faith in Christ. It is not obedience of works salvation. It is not an obedience of the law or to the law. Why? Because the inheritance of salvation is not of law but of promise. God promised to give an inheritance to all that he made co-heirs with his son. It is by promise. And that means it is of grace. The law is not of faith. I didn't say that, it's Paul did. The law is not of faith. And that which is not of faith cannot please God, cannot set you loose. It is not saying that the law does not please God. It is saying your doing of the law can never please God. It can never please God. And also Paul says, that which is not of faith is sin. That which is not of faith is sin. So the more that you try to do the law, the more sinful you get. (laughs) Because the law can only work more sin in you because of unbelief. If I take you back to the 613 commandments, and I say you try to do them every day, you're going to be multiplying your sin. The law can only bring more bondage. The language of the law being bondage is not my language. It's Paul's language. It's Peter's language in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council when the Jews were trying, the redeemed believing Jews were trying to bring Gentile believers back under Moses. 
And Peter stood up and said, no, guys, you can't do that. Why do we want to put a burden, bring these people under bondage, under something that we ourselves, even our fathers, could not do? Peter acknowledges that they did not do the law and neither did their fathers. So why try to bring Gentile believers under something that we clearly know that we could not do? So the law is not of faith. It can only bring more bondage. So these things need to be qualified because the enemies of grace are quick to find an opportunity to make it of works. And they are also very quick to use antinomian. It sounds to them like that is the, the coolest word that they know. They love it. Oh, that is rank antinomianism. And they think they are really saying something amazing. <laughs> but it is an odd trick that is used by unbelievers used against the Lord Jesus by the Jews, even against his disciples. The Lord Jesus was accused of the Jews of being an antinomian for apparently breaking the Sabbath, healing on the Sabbath, yeah, working on the Sabbath. To the Jews, they say that is antinomianism. And it did not end there. Paul was accused of being an antinomian. That's why they were beating him up. Listen to me, someone. There's no obedience by one who was formerly under the slave master of sin that leads to salvation. There's no obedience that you and I can render to God that causes salvation. That obedience is only and was only by Christ Jesus, which thing Paul already made clear in the previous chapter where he said, let's go Romans 5. I think it's 15, verse 15. And 16, and then verse 19. Paul said, For if the many died through the transgression of the one man, how much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, multiply to the many? And the gift is not like the one who sinned, for judgment resulting from the one transgression led to condemnation. So that's how condemnation came, because of Adam. But the gracious gift from the many failures, from the many transgressions, led to justification. Your justification is from the gracious gift, not from your doing. Your justification is from the gracious gift. 
Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were messengers, that's all were messengers. So also, by one man's obedience, the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. Many of those who are in the one man, Christ. Not many as in all who are in Adam, but many as are in Christ. So you have been set free from sin, death and condemnation by a gift of God in Christ. That is the only way, and that is God's message. Everything must be interpreted and understood through these lenses. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves wading through the waters of Rome of grace plus works. But Paul mentioned in obedience that it results in righteousness. And that is the obedience of faith. You have to know this is the obedience of faith. An obedience of believing that righteousness. We have to define what that obedience of faith looks like. It is the obedience of believing that your righteousness has come to you, has been reckoned to you by God's grace alone. That's obedience. That's true obedience. Because it is in total agreement with what God says. It is by Christ doing alone that's in total agreement with God's message. And it is by way of God's unconditional imputation of this righteousness to me who is counted among the elect and elect by God's grace alone, that's obedience of faith. And this is the obedience that the world rejects. Even the religious world rejects. But to the redeemed, this is the true obedience to believe in him whom God has sent, the Lord Jesus. That's true obedience, to believe in him. When you read the book of John, the major issue, or even the, the Gospels, the major issue between the Jews and Jesus was that they did not believe God's testimony about Christ. That was the issue. They did not obey God because they denied Jesus' claims of himself. And the one who, by God's grace, agrees with God's testimony of his son is the one who is in obedience to God. After all, confession means to say the same things 
as someone else. To say the same words as, that's what confession means. It's homo logeo in the Greek. That's two words. That's a compound of two words. Homo means the same. Logeo is where you get logos. That's words. So to confess Christ means to agree with God about what he has said about Christ. That's true confession. It's not going and spilling out the beans on your sin. Okay? That's Roman Catholicism. Verse 17 of Romans 6. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, the redeemed were also slaves to sin in every way, not any different from the rest and under all its power. But thanks be given to God's doing. You obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching, that form of teaching, that form of doctrine that you were entrusted to. And having been freed from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. Thanks be to God. Thanks must be given to God. Why? For causing the change of masters. He, by himself, caused all who believe to obey from the heart that pattern of teaching that you were entrusted to, that form of teaching, in other words, it is God who caused you to believe the gospel. It is God who caused a change of masters. So their belief, our belief in the gospel, which was caused by God, and was declared to them and to us was the obedience that was in view because it is only by this gospel that sinners were set free by Christ and not by the law. Paul has not overlooked or forgotten about the law in this conversation. No, he has not. And he makes these arguments with that view too because as soon as we're done with verse 23, guess what? The first line in Romans 7 is going to be a discussion on law. So he's building this to prepare us for his arguments in Romans 7. But having been freed from sin and its power to condemn and to bring death the redeemed were not left dangling in the wilderness by themselves. They became enslaved to another master, enslaved to Christ. Christ is their new master because it was he who bought them 
from their former slave master. It is Christ who bought our freedom by way of his blood. The blood of Christ was the blood of freedom. It is the blood that changed the master of sin and deposed him from his throne. Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Paul says, I am speaking this way and using this language of slavery and freedom because of the inability of your flesh to properly understand spiritual things, spiritual realities. So I have to use this picture to paint the truth in a way that is more accessible to your experience and understanding the reality of how things used to be for you and how things are for you. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. That is how what all sinners do. They present willing the members of their body to do sin's bidding. That's what sinners do. So now, now, in the context of Christ, because that now is preparing us for a change. But now, in the context of Christ, in the knowledge of your justification and acceptance by God, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Present the members of your flesh as slaves to sanctification. The question is, what does that mean? (laughs) I believe in the context. Paul means in the light of the knowledge of Christ. Present your members to things that are righteous as against impure and lawless things. He does not mean to say you were or are not, you weren't or you are not sanctified in Christ. I'm going to have to repeat that because I'm trying to develop a point. Paul says, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. That is not saying you were not sanctified in Christ because the progressive sanctification people will come and say, see, you're not sanctified. You're only justified. Now you're being sanctified. That's not Paul's argument. He is using the language of sanctification to mean separation from those things that you used to do. 
that used to drink like Kool-Aid <laughs> things that were sinful. This is not sanctification in the absolute sense of the sanctification that leads to your meeting with God in peace. But this is a reduced sense of the usage of the term. The absolute sense of sanctification is what we are already in Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, by his doing, we are in Christ Jesus, who was made unto us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that's the absolute sense of who we are in Christ. Christ has been made unto us. He is our wisdom before God. Christ is he who talks for us before God in all the wisdom that he alone can master. He is our righteousness. And he is our sanctification as he is our redemption. So Paul is not saying this is the sanctification that you need to see God. No, that cannot be true. He's using it in an imperative sense. Christ has already set us apart perfectly and completely to God through the sprinkling of his blood. And thus we are God's own possession and we are holy. We have been made holy by his doing, by his election we have been separated unto God. By the sprinkling of his blood we have been set sanctified to God and as we stand in Christ we have no need of improvement I'm going to repeat that as we stand in Christ we have no need of improvement because Christ has no need of improvement don't forget the union thing with Christ. We are united to him. God sees us through Christ, not individually as we are. He sees us in Christ. So you're going to see that in much of the writing of Paul, he loves the word in. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. Everything is in Christ. And how we stand in Christ is who we are as far as God is concerned. How we stand in Christ is who we are. Because that which is united to perfection has no need of improvement. You cannot make an improvement on that which is perfect. You can only mess it up. And that is why Paul said, Christ is complete in himself. And we are complete in him.
He, he did not say, oh, we are being made complete in him. He said, no, we are already complete in him. So this sanctification that Paul speaks of here in Romans 6 is another way to speak of a command, of an imperative, but not as an imperative that leads to an indicative because progressive sanctification is saying if you follow the exhortations and you begin to improve your sanctification, that work that you do cooperating with God will lead you into an indicative. And that's false teaching. There's no way. Imperatives do not graduate you into the indicatives. In other words, in a simple way, doing commands does not earn you salvation. Indicatives alone, and by that we mean, for those who have never heard of it, Indicatives are the things that God did in Christ alone. And the things that he did in Christ alone is what produced all the eternal blessings, realities that we possess in Christ. It's what Christ alone did. Those are the indicatives. That's who we are in Christ as God sees us, redeemed, justified, and holy. So there's no doing of an imperative that causes one to be free from sin and its condemnation. That's the other way to look at it. There's no doing of any command that will set you free from sin. If that were the case, Jesus died in vain. Okay. But in simple terms, this is what Paul is saying. You are now God's children who know the truth. You have and should have a different and better motivation. So present yourself better. Be good children. Be kind children. Be loving children. Bear each other's burdens. That's what that is saying, in other words. He is not saying your salvation comes from this part of the sanctification. Let's expand it some more. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. When you were slaves to sin, that is, before Christ was revealed to you, you were free with regard to righteousness. Before you were redeemed, that is the state that you existed in, whether you knew it or not. In other words, this is a zero or one situation. You were not a slave to sin 99% or 20%. You were not 50% righteous and 50% unrighteous. <laughs> you were 100% under sin, 
100% under Adam. And then when the transition happened, you're 100% under Christ. A person cannot be a slave to sin. And that is be under the power of sin and law. That's what that is saying. Being a slave of sin is not necessarily saying doing a lot of sin. It is saying being under that covenant or relationship in which you were not redeemed. Doesn't matter how moral you were. You were a slave to sin. The Pharisee in Luke 18 was under the power of sin, was a slave to sin, and his testimony of righteousness was rejected by Christ for that reason. He claimed righteousness when he was still in Adam. And Christ says, there's nothing like that. You're still under sin. You're still under law. It's not going to happen. You're still a slave of sin. So, being under slaves of sin, being slaves of sin, Paul says they were free regarding righteousness. Because they were not being pulled by the strings of the gospel. Righteousness had no claim on them. Whatever they conceived as freedom was freedom not to sin. It was not freedom that came by Christ. Their freedom was freedom to actually do more sin. And yet, the tax collector was a righteous man even though in practice he was a sinner. In the doing of sin, he actually was doing more sin than the Pharisee. He was stealing. He worked for the IRS of the day. (laughs) Why was he a righteous man? Why was God propitious to him Because Christ had made a claim on him. Christ had made a claim on him. These are seemingly complicated ways of saying the same things gospel. Paul is teaching gospel here, but in a different way. See Paul's word play on the word free. He loved to use the word free like we do. (laughs) It's free. Instead of him saying, under sin, you were not righteous. He said, you were free with regard to righteousness. (laughs) He could have just saved a lot of ink. Ink was not cheap. He could have easily said, you were not righteous when you were under sin, when you were under law, when you were under Moses, when you were in Adam, he says, no, you were free in regard to righteousness. 
So anyone who is not in Christ is free in regard to righteousness. In other words, they are condemned. That's another way to say they are condemned. It is not a good free in that respect. Bondage to sin and condemnation. That's what Paul means by that line. And the opposite of verse 20 is Romans 8 verse 1. The opposite of verse 20 of Romans 6.20 is Romans 8 verse 1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's justification. In Romans 6.20, being free in regard to righteousness means condemnation. It's a different way of saying condemnation. And Romans 8 verse 1, no condemnation is a different way of saying justification. So those in Christ cannot be slaves to sin. And let me emphasize this. This is not saying. This is speaking to their doing or not doing of sin. That's not the argument. Those in Christ cannot be slaves to sin by reason of their master. Not by reason of them not doing sin. But by the reason of their master, they have been given a different master who has overcome sin. So Christ is your new master and he is not enslaving you to sin because he has removed the power of sin over you to condemn you. So you are not a slave to sin. Sin has no more power over you to condemn you because you have a new master. You have a gracious master. You have a loving master. You have a master who has justified you from all of your sins. And for that reason, sin has no more power over you. That's why I said this is a very deep argument that Paul is making in a different way. Those in Christ cannot be slaves to sin by virtue of being in Christ. They are free because they are in him who is free. Christ is not a slave of sin. Therefore, we are not slaves of sin because we are in him who is free. Remember what he said. Whom the Son of Man says free is free indeed. That's another way of saying it. We are free indeed. Free from what? From the power of sin. (laughs) Free from being slaves of sin. So what Jesus says is what matters. No matter your contrary experience. What Jesus says is what matters. When Jesus comes and says, neither do I condemn thee. It doesn't matter what else everybody says. <laughs> it's there. Neither do I condemn thee. But Paul then asked, a question as it were to shame and wake up his audience to the reality 
of heart of what and how things used to be in the light of how they now stand in Christ and said verse 21 so he's shaming them so what benefit did you then reap from those things that you are now ashamed of what benefit and you can look at some of the things that you have done and you think man what what does i think <laughs> Why did I do such? Why did I approve of such things? In hindsight. So he says he says without saying it. This is what he's saying. He knows. Lawlessness and impurity was a lot of fun. But he says, what benefit? What fruit did you reap? And that is agrarian language. This language of agriculture. What did you harvest from those things that you joyously used to do or approve of? And this could be asked of anyone. Even the pop. <laughs> the pop is not a righteous man. He still understand. But for illustration purposes, I'll say this because I've seen some conversations and videos of, say, a person. I was talking to one of our neighbors and he was telling us of some pastor somewhere close to downtown Columbus was dealing with some person who had a gender change. And was permanently altered. And now they discovered that they were sold a lie. And are regretting and they need to go back to who they used to be. Paul in that context will come and say to them, what benefit did you then reap from those things that you are now ashamed of? That's exactly what Paul is saying. What did you benefit from that? You did your sin with much pomp and fanfare to the applause of many. But what did you actually benefit from sin other than the passing pleasures, especially in regards to your standing before God? In what way did that really help you? And he supplied the answer to his question and said, for the end of those things is death. The end of all sin is death. There's no good end to it for the unredeemed. It leads to death. And by death, Paul means God's condemnation to hell. He is not saying just dying and being buried at the cemetery. Because even the redeemed die. He's speaking of condemnation. And you and I would be, you see this trouble, if there was no verse 22, especially the first two words, but now. And that is a very good transition. But now, 
thank God for those two words. But now, and I should have added that as one of my titles, but now, but now, freed from sin and enslaved to God. This is who you are. You have been, you are not under death. For the rest of the people, the end of the sin is death. That's what Paul says. But now, for you, you have been freed from all that foolishness, from all your sin, freed from sin, freed from its condemnation. That has to be the context. Because death is the judgment of sin. So we have been freed from the condemnation of our sin, which means we've been justified. Freed from sin and enslaved to God. You have your benefit. You have your benefit of being justified, leading to sanctification, and the end is eternal life. The outcome, eternal life. So the believer is one who is already freed and enslaved to God. Freed and enslaved. Pay attention to the tenses. You have been freed already. That's the declaration. You're not doing anything to be freed. You have been freed and enslaved to God. God did it. So the redeemed are supposed to see themselves in the transition, in the but now transition, because that was them transitioning from sin and its effects to the but now freed from sin and enslaved to God. And to be enslaved to God is the same as saying being enslaved to the righteousness of Christ, to be in Christ, to be redeemed and justified. And Paul did not say, we are being freed step by step, justified two, three steps today, and back another step, one and a half steps, Tomorrow, sanctified five times this week and unsanctified three steps the following week. <laughs> he presents it as something that already was done. So pay attention to what Paul is doing here. I like say Romans or Ephesians chapters one to three where Paul hammers the indicatives chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, right? Everything being summed up in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth, predestination, predestined by God's grace, God's sovereign purpose being revealed in Christ, the mystery of salvation being revealed in Christ. And it does not begin to work the imperatives until chapter 4. In Romans chapter 6, he is mixing them, indicative and imperative, 
So if you're not aware of that, people are going to take the imperative part of it and impose it on the indicative. And that's what a lot of preachers and people do because they're not understanding the arguments and how Paul is weaving his arguments. Okay? So, the redeemed have already experienced a change of masters. That's a very significant point that Paul is making. They have already experienced a change of masters from sin's condemnation to justification. They were freed from sin by being baptized into Christ, being baptized into his death, dying with Christ, being crucified with Christ. And that to say Christ's death is the single event that caused the but now transition. Not your stopping this and that. It's Christ's death that was the only event that caused the change of masters. Okay? Not our striving against sin. But in our being freed from sin, we also got enslaved to God. And that means there was a change of masters by reason of the cross. The redeemed are now taking instructions from God in Christ, in a new relationship in which they were justified and reconciled to him. And so this is a very positive enslavement. Unlike sin's enslavement that brings about death, being enslaved to God has its fruit. It has its benefit. It has its payout. You have your benefit leading to sanctification. And this is being contrasted to sin and what it pays. Being freed from sin has the benefit of sanctification in Christ. And the end of being sanctified in Christ is eternal life. When you make that statement, you have to qualify it. None ends with eternal life just because they stop sin with everything that we know about eternal life and how one has eternal life. It cannot come from you stopping sin. Paul's point is that of exhortation of the redeemed to say their new walk in Christ has a very good end for them. And they are to see it that way as opposed to those who walk in sin unredeemed. He's comparing the payouts. The payout of sin and remaining unredeemed is death. The payout of being in Christ is sanctification, being sanctified to God and eternal life. Verse 23, let's see if I'm lying. For the payoff 
The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can it be a gift of God when you have just told us that it is the benefit of me being sanctified by my stopping sin? How could it be a gift when I have been taught to work it? So our thinking is correct. That Paul is comparing two things here. Two masters. Sin and what it brings. The outcome, the benefit, the fruit of it, the end of it is death. Being in Christ being freed, having a new master, we have been justified and we have a benefit that comes from it. We have been sanctified by God in Christ and we have eternal life. Because those are gifts. And if they're gifts, it means Sean did not cause them. (laughs) But the teaching on progressive sanctification, they make the gift a work that you have to perform. And I don't agree with that. And they use the law for that. Hence the third use of the law. Things that may sound scriptural, but they're making a mess of things. So verse 23 of Romans 6 summarizes the whole argument that Paul is making. He is saying between sin and Christ, there are two masters and clear Payouts. The one who remains in sin is he or she who remains in the one man Adam, but this is connected to Adam also. He or she who remains under the law because in Romans 7 verse 1, Paul is going to say we die to the law through the death of Christ. For he or she who remains under the law, they are under sin and its wages. If you remain under the law, you're going to get the wages of law. That's very clear teaching. It's very clear teaching. If you remain under the law, you get the wages of the law. If you are in Christ, you get the wages of being in Christ. Because they don't pay the same. The law because of sin will pay you with death and condemnation. Christ because of grace will pay you with righteousness and eternal life. And someone say, oh that's antinomianism. No, 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 you guys are sick. You don't understand the gospel. <laughs> so eternal life is not in your sanctification, not in your doing of sanctification. It is not in doing, it is in God's grace alone. It is a gift. Okay. But I wanted us to end this way. By revisiting something that Paul said. Verse 21 of Romans 6. Paul says, So what benefit did you then reap from those things that you are now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. 
Listen to those words that are being said to those who are the redeemed of Christ. It is more than Paul speaking to them. It is God speaking to them. It is Christ himself through Paul. Those whom Christ redeemed, they get a rebuke, but not condemnation. And you pay attention to this. They get a rebuke, but not condemnation. They get a rebuke as a way of exhortation. Like a parent rebuking their child for some foolishness that they did. That was dangerous to them, but the parent does not deny their child does not condemn them and say, get out of my house and I don't ever want to see you again. The parent comes and says, why were you doing the foolishness? (laughs) And that is supposed to shame the child and hopefully bring some sense to the child but not for them to belong to the parent. I want you with that to hear the contrast from the Lord Jesus to those that are not his. Let's go to Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, the lawmongers who come and say, See, to do the will of the Father is to do the law. No. <laughs> That's not the context. Jesus explained it in John 6. And said, when the Jews came to him and said, well, what works must we work to do the will or work of God? They wanted a list of things to do. He said, well, this is the work of God to believe in him whom he has sent. So that's the will of the Father to believe on the Christ. But many shall come and say to me, Lord, Lord. Many, verse 22, many will say to me in that day, in the day of judgment, I already know. Jesus is saying, I already know what they're going to say. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? So this is a group of people. Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. So these are some church folk. Some serious religious people. They were casting out demons. They were prophesying. They were praying at three in the morning, doing all kinds of religious stuff. And they did wonders. <laughs> and Jesus did not say, oh, of course you're lying. No, he did not go there. He acknowledges their religiosity. But then... He says more, verse 23, and then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You are antinomians. How can very religious people, moral people, be called antinomians by Jesus? Because they did not understand the proper function of the law. These whom the Lord calls lawless never experienced the but now of verse 21 of Romans 6. But now, having been set free from sin, they came and talked about their own works of righteousness, like many do. Because when you say, we are saved by grace alone, and someone says, oh, you antinomian, guess what they're saying? They are saying, they are doing a lot of good works that they have determined you are not doing. It is lawlessness to come to Jesus and talk about your own obedience. It is lawlessness to Jesus to come and talk about your own law keeping. Jesus said, I never knew you. The Greek word there is genosko or progenosko. Is Adam knew Eve and he had a child. It's David and what's the name of the servant? No, it's another one. It's some, we did a message. She's right there. The servant was given David when he was, when he was very old. Abishag. <laughs> the Abishag dilemma. When David was old, he was given a servant, some young lady to take care of him every one of his needs to warm him up because he was feeling cold. Abishag did everything for the king. She washed, she ironed, she cooked, she did everything for the king, but the Texas, but the king knew her not. The king did not have any intimate relations with Abishag. Even though she did everything for the king, everyone in the community of the Jews thought she had an intimate relationship with the king. So just being around the king, being around church does not mean people are in the relationship with Christ that Christ wants with them. I never knew you. I never loved you. I never had any intimate relationship with you. I never gave you my Holy Spirit. I never gave you a true testimony of righteousness. Because if you were, you would have talked about being baptized in my death. You will not be talking about your own things. You'll be talking about the righteousness of the cross. You'll be talking about imputed righteousness that was lacking in their testimony. This is the time of judgment. In that day of judgment, many, that's the majority of church folk, 
who come to me and say those things. It was absent in their testimony. But to you and me, we do not get a rejection from Jesus. At the very most, he says, son, daughter, what benefit did you derive from that foolishness? I thought that was remarkable to me. I thought that was remarkable. He's not expanding on it. Is that, what, 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 are, what do you think you're actually doing? <laughs> That's a sign of love. It's not rejection. It's love, it's an exhortation. Come here and I'll show you the better way. Let me show you myself. But what he did was foolishness. He didn't benefit from that. So this is how Paul communicated the gospel. He did not even want for anyone to think that their standing before God was coming from something that they did. At the same time, he's saying, I've given you this message from God. Be responsible with it. Don't act foolish because of it. Essentially, that's what he's saying. So in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, we have this and we'll close on that. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Again, Paul says, we are a Pauline church. Every message has Paul says. <laughs> so Paul better be telling the truth. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's a statement of fact. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, no adulterers, no homosexuals, no sodomites, no thieves, no covetous, no drunkards, no revilers, no extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And the list is endless. So if you say, oh, the adulterers, what about the other stuff? <laughs> they pick the category that is convenient to them. The list is big. The list of the unrighteous is big. And you can be unrighteous even if you spend the rest of your life locked up in the basement by yourself. You still be unrighteous. But then Paul says in such a way, some of you, you were all those things. If you were among the unrighteous, the question is, how did you escape from that, how do you manage your way out of it? You stop sinning. Because the preachers of work salvation will say, if only you could stop your covetousness, then you become the righteous. If only you could stop your drinking, your reviling, then you become the righteous. So they pound and pound and pound on it to cause you to be righteous. But is that how you escaped from being righteous? Let's hear Paul. But you were washed. 
If you watched, it means someone did it. It didn't say, but you washed yourself. It said you were washed. Kenny and Sean are going to be washing their child soon. She's going to be washed. She's not going to be washing herself. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. It's God who did it. So you did not become righteous by you stopping anything. You became righteous by something that was done to you for you by Christ. You were freed from sin and enslaved God's own righteousness. Justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God your justification, your sanctification by God's doing alone because he chose you in Christ. Okay? And it was free. That's a brilliant message. It's free. Let's boy gospel. <laughs> Amen. We're done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these many, many wonderful words that you've given us about our salvation. Being freed from sin and being enslaved to God, enslaved righteousness, but not our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. We thank you for helping us understand the truth of Christ in this very difficult chapter of Romans 6. Because many would have us to think that we are now being made righteous by something that we do. And yet the testimony remains that it is only by you washing us and sanctifying us and justifying us that we are now called the righteous We thank you for all who came to hear the message. May you cause them to come back and to continue to learn the truth. We honor you, glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, good people. We'll see you. I'm traveling next weekend. So if I'm able, you see me online, I'll post the times that I'll be available if I'm able to preach. I'm going to be out of time. Be praying for my message, be praying for me. Okay? Thank you.